Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. My simple solution to the problem was remove people from the scene and help them feel safer. In response to attacks against Asian Americans, Maddie Park raised over $250,000 to donate cab rides to the Asian community. There is so much more work to be done. We really need to come together and tackle this issue as a community. Support the Asian community. Learn how at lovehasnolabels.com. Brought to you by Love Has No Labels and the Ad Council. You're listening to 100 Words or Less with Ray Harkins. What is up, everybody? Thank you for listening to this podcast, downloading it, streaming it, whatever you are doing. You are putting this thing in your ears and you are spending time investing in yourself. (laughs) I know it sounds like a, a TED talk, but you know, you engage with independent music and I want to commend you because that is why we still are involved, why we care about this thing so much. Whether that's punk, hardcore, indie rock, I don't care what it is, you're investing in it and it's awesome. Today's guest is one I've had on a, I have a ridiculously long list, mind you, but um, this is a person I, I penned many years ago on this uh, Google Doc that I keep track of stuff, and we finally were able to make it happen. His name is Gibby Miller. He used to sing for a band called Panic, also played in a band called The Trouble, has been running an incredible record label called Dias Records from Los Angeles. He also was the owner, operator, proprietor of Makeout Club. So if you are familiar with the social networking site called Makeout Club, first of all, you're old, but second of all, awesome. (laughs) I'm here for it. But anyways, uh, yeah, Gibby... Dias, first of all, is an incredible record label documenting some really fringe art. Like they um, are doing so many interesting things. And uh, I just love the label. I mean, home to Drab Majesty and a lot of the cool sort of dark wave, new wave stuff that happens or, you know, these days, but then also does a lot of experimental stuff, putting out, you know, coil records. And um, yeah, I just follow what they do. And I really appreciate the fact that they're able to shine a spotlight on music that uh, may not you know, get, find a home elsewhere. And, uh, I love that about the label. So anyways, that's what we got with Gibby. First of all, you can always email the podcast, 100 words, podcast at gmail.com. Love it to hear feedback or reaching out about guest ideas or whatever the case may be. You can also leave a review on your favorite podcast platform, whether that's Apple podcast, uh, or Spotify. Those are the best places to do it. It makes the algorithms work to the show's advantage and recommends it to more and more people, et cetera, et cetera. You get the deal. I'm also incredibly excited 
to announce this. I will be coming to the United Kingdom to do my very first live podcasts at Outbreak Fest, which, uh, if memory serves me right, it's uh, June 24th, 25th, and 26th over in the United Kingdom. And uh, first of all, incredible music festival. If you've not paid attention to what they are doing over there, just Google Outbreak Fest, and you can also follow it on all the socials. But um, it's their 10-year anniversary, and they are, I mean, it's such a good lineup of bands, you know, tons of previous guests of this show. And uh, I was incredibly honored and uh, felt very excited <laughs> that they reached out to me because they're doing a, a talks stage, as it were. And so uh, I'm going to be interviewing people in front of other people, and I will be uh, probably publishing some of those episodes in a at a later date, and I'm just excited to tell you that. So find out Breakfast. It's actually sold out, so I would say buy tickets, but you don't need to do that. <laughs> if you were coming, say what's up, come to the talk stage, say hi. I'll actually be having some merch there for the first time. A lot of firsts here. So anyways, huge shout out to the team at Outbreak Fest for reaching out to me and making it happen. I'm very, very excited about that. So yeah, let's talk to Gibby. So many cool places we go and uh, here we are. I got pulled into your orbit uh, primarily because of panic and being a uh, you know hardcore kid of a certain age. Uh, there was clearly that you know like late nineties, early aughts of more what I would call quote unquote forward thinking hardcore, where it's like not right. just you know kind of paint by numbers of the sort of you know youth crew type of stuff, but it had a specific aesthetic and sound. But then. Alternatively, there was definitely a lot of people that like looked at, you know, bands like you guys, horror show, a lot of other, you know, artists of that time frame and were just like, oh, yeah, so they're just like an American nightmare ripoff, which, you know, is not true in my opinion. But (laughs) were was that something that, you know, you, I guess, got echoed back to you or was that something that you know, just kind of came about by the fact that, you know, all of these bands existed at the same time. So there was that nature of, you know, the uh, detractors of the particular scene being like, oh, yeah, they're just ripoffs of other bands that happened before. Or am I just blowing this out of proportion? <laughs> no, I mean, I certainly think that, you know, we we were we were lucky to be around at that time when there was a ton of bands um, coming up in, in Boston and, um, you know, clearly American Nightmare um, was a thing. You know, they, they were they were huge, not only in Boston, but they were, um, you know, quickly gaining popularity um, nation, world, you know, worldwide. So, um, you know, they were probably among the first bands that broke that kind of wore their, um, you know, that wore their hearts on the sleeve with regard to you don't have to dress this way. You can be into this music, too. Um, you know, le- leaning further away from that youth crew image. And, you know, I would, I would argue that Undertow um, and Unbroken were bands that at least for me felt that way too. Um, and, uh, and, you know, kind of came before. Um, but I, I don't think I, I ever felt any, um, uh, you know, any insulting uh, or belittling comparison to, 
to what Wes and AN were doing. I, I felt like, you know, Panic played with AN so much back in the day and we played with Horror Show that I think we all kind of felt like we were part of the same world, part of the same scene kind of doing our thing. Um, so it felt more synergistic and, and, um, um, and, uh, and cohesive to me, if that makes sense. Yeah. Oh, and that, and that I agree just because it is that weird, interesting set of circumstances where certain, you know, air, geographical areas kind of pop off from a sort of scene perspective where everybody seems to have kind of coincidentally, you know, sort of existed with all of these ideas that were not, you know, necessarily like everybody was speaking to each other, like, oh, let's start, you know, these hardcore bands that are, you know, sonically similar, but have different aims, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so I just always felt that that was, especially too, where it's like, you know, you go further away from that origin point of, you know, whatever Boston scene in the, you know, late nineties, early two thousands. And then you start to see where it's like that proliferates across the country and other bands, you know, get that idea because they either saw, you know, you guys or American Nightmare or any of the other ones that existed at that time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and I do, I appreciate the call, you know, the unbroken and undertow call it. Cause I do think that that is, you know, a real origin point for so many people to look at something that is aesthetically one thing where it's like, you know, obviously with unbroken, you have the, you know, sort of greaser fifties look and, you know, undertow was just like the, you know, quadruple XL t-shirts and, you know, everything <laughs> that they were doing. Yeah. Yeah. But it's cool to be able to draw that straight line to, you know, the influence that it played on, you know, you and putting yourself out there. Yeah. And I think like, I I think that there's a few different angles that people took when they were describing us. And one was like, oh, it's okay to like the Smiths and Joy Division. And the other one was the lyrical content and the musical content. Um, And and I think, uh, you know, when I think about the lyrics that Wes was writing and, you know, stuff that Jake Bannon was writing and the stuff that Bane was doing around the same time, I think that there was a, there was sort of, I don't know, for me, I felt like there was a lot of sort of more poetic art leaning lyricism happening in hardcore. And maybe I just kind of got to it late because, you know, I didn't really, I went to hardcore shows, you know, a lot, but I wasn't like a hardcore kid really, I, I kind of came up in the mod and skin thing. And I was in an oi band called the trouble. Um, and, uh, and I think our, my lyrics prior to, to that period of, t- I mean, I think my lyrics in, in the trouble and the music we were writing was, was still a little bit different. It wasn't like strictly street funk. Um, but the lyrics were certainly a little bit more like hit you on the head than you know, than they were later. Um, but I don't know. Um, Maybe it was something in the air, something that was going on at that time. Yeah. And I, and I think to your point too, because I know that I, once I was exposed to you and your, you know, artistic projection and then like, oh yeah, like I had heard of The Trouble, but I wasn't, you know, grossly familiar with it. And then once I kind of listened to it, it was like, oh, it's cool because you are bringing this point of view that, you know, was it was happening at the particular time, but you were viewing it through a different lens where it's like, yes, you you are allowed to like Depeche Mode and Joy Division and play in a hardcore band. Those are fine. Yeah, yeah, totally. You have permission. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Totally. <laughs> uh, we'll pull out a few of those strings a little bit later, but um, I-, I wanted to hit on you as an individual. Um, I know you weren't born and raised in Boston, but uh, I don't have any sort of 
grasp at where you kind of came up? What was your, uh, you know, what your, your birthplace as it were? Yeah, sure. I was born in New York. Um, and, uh, we lived in New York until I was around five and we moved to St. Louis, Missouri when I was five. And so I lived in St. Louis from the age of five to 15. So my first shows and my first, my exposure to subculture and the underground and me and and like, you know, college radio, all that stuff happened. Um, when I was a kid, you know, I met older kids, older neighbors, um, who gave me records and who told me about this all ages club. And then, told me about this radio show that I should listen to. Um, and, uh, and I got, you know, I kind of got wrapped up into the whole thing, you know, hanging out at the mall, hanging out at the food court and going to all ages shows and, you know, heading downtown to go to Mississippi nights or Bernard's pub. Um, and I probably started going to shows in around the age of like 13 or 14. And my first shows primarily were ska shows. Um, and what I would call alternative shows. So 91, 92, I think I saw like soul asylum with the lemon heads. That was like my first show. Um, and the mighty, mighty boss tones. And believe it or not, I I feel like those shows were kind of scary. You know, like it's been, I was like 13. There's like dudes with facial hair in the audience and like, you know, it's like tattoos. Whoa, this is, you know, these are adults. Yeah, they're adults, you know? And uh, so, yeah, that was that was kind of it. Like coming up in St. Louis and hanging out with kids at school and meeting kids and going to all ages shows. That was kind of that was kind of where it happened. And then at 15, I moved to Boston. Um, and I started, you know, I think St. Louis kind of had this spot uh, near, uh, in, near uh, uh, in, in U City, um, near Washington University called The Loop on Del Mar. And um, I feel like every city kind of has this this space, this spot. And it's like across from Vintage Vinyl Records on Del Mar in St. Louis, there's, there was a wall. I don't even know if it's there next to a public parking lot. And that wall was just the hangout. And you would walk down there. You know, I'd have my mom drop me off or ride my bike down there. And I would go to Cafe Chaos and get like a milkshake and, you know, look at tapes at Vintage Vinyl and just sit down there on a summer afternoon and hope I, to meet people, you know? Right. <laughs> right. Oh, I just, you know, Oh, they're wearing a, a Fugazi shirt. You know, they're, they're a friend that right. kind of vibe, you know, like that meaningful acknowledgement um, that you're in the same tribe, you know? So I was sort of desperate to meet like-minded people like that. And so, you know, that was kind of my, th- those are kind of the early days, you know? And, and, um, there were a lot of, uh, there were a lot, I think we're, it was a really cool period of time. I think for music, there was like a lot of cool bands coming through and just a lot of weird kind of fun stuff happening. Um, I got exposed to the internet around that time, although it wasn't really the internet. I had a neighbor who was uh, very technically minded who showed me how to use a modem to connect to a bulletin board system. And there was a bulletin board system community that surrounded this, uh, this radio show, this uh, kind of punk radio show. And, um, I would use my family's computer to cut in the modem to call and uh, to dial into this bulletin board system that was called off world. And it was this place where like people would like meet up and hang out and, uh, talk about what shows were happening. And of course 
you can imagine, there, I mean, there was no internet then. This was just dial up. This was a single computer hosting people that dialed in on a modem to post messages. But I was like, whoa, this is crazy. And that was like my first exposure to sort of an online community where people could leave messages and post shows and stuff. It was, it was really ahead of its time. And it was all, it, it was hosted by the guy that did the radio show um, who also put on shows. So it was like a very early crazy like roll up of, you know, show promotion and, you know, community building. Um, and I was intrigued by that. So that I would say kind of like laid early groundwork for my like, aha, hmm, online communities. Like when I think about things that inspired Makeout Club, which, you know, maybe we can talk about later, but yeah. yeah. And, and I moved, I moved to Boston at 15 and, and, uh, and I got, I veered off course a little bit there, but I was going to say like hanging out in the Harvard square pit was kind of the equivalent of St. Of Louis. the wall. Yeah, yeah. Of the wall. Exactly. Exactly. In Boston. And it was like, you know, rinse, wash, repeat. I met all, I met, you know, hanging out in the Harvard square pit, waiting to meet someone like me, you know, and I met a lot of great friends there. Right. Right. I, I really, I, I like the, um, painting the picture of, you know, I mean, most kids of a certain age is experience of just like that, that physical location as being the spot, whether it's a comic book store records or whatever the case may be, or like arcade, all of those things that are, you know, depicted in many movies, but just that notion of the happenstance of being like, well, hope maybe there's someone cool that's going to show up. And like 90% of the time, it usually wasn't the case. But then there would be that time where, you, like you said, you could meet, you know, your best friend for life because they were wearing, you know, a minor threat t-shirt or whatever. Just like some touch point of, of subculture where you're just like, oh, you know, what's up? Like, cool. <laughs> Let's talk. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I can't, I can't even like so many kids just met at the mall, the food court of the St. Louis Gallery or at the, at the mall and, um, at the wall on Del Mar or at like the steak and shake, just going to the steak and shake or sitting in a Denny's parking lot. Just like, it sounds so, it just sounds so terrible, but, um, yeah, but yeah that's what we did. We skateboarded around and rode our bikes around and you know, there's nothing else to do, you know? We're, yeah. That's, that's how you're supposed to be too young to work, hot summer day. You know, what are we going to do? Yeah, that's how you're supposed to meet people. But I, I do like the, because most people's, uh, you know, conception of Midwest is, Yes, there are certain pockets of cultural relevance, quote unquote, but it's not like, you know, St. Louis is ever painted with that picture, you know, and or painted with that brush, I should say. And so it's cool that you were able to find those little pockets. And then, like you said, you know, dialing into a BBS system like that's, you know, I mean, that predates, you know, AOL chat rooms and stuff like that for finding people to be like, oh, dude, like, have you heard this band Rage Against the Machine? Like, just yeah. trying to trying to find those little areas of, of, you know, commonalities where you can have these in-depth discussions about whatever it is you are, are getting obsessed about. Yeah. It's, it's pretty remarkable. I think like a lot of, um, a lot of people may, uh, overlook the power and potency of small town USA. Um, you know, and I think that there's probably more severe examples of, of, of small town USA than St. Louis, which is, you know, quite comparatively a, a, a large city with a lot going on. But um, I, I was overwhelmed with the amount of stuff that I was exposed to. Um, and I think that there is a, uh, there's a, an urgency and a, um, and a, and a real hunger for that stuff in, in towns like that, where, you know, there's not a public transportation system. I mean, there is, but there's not like, there's not a subway system like there is in New York city or Boston, you know, that where you can, 
I can walk out my door and get on a train and be downtown in 10 minutes. It's just not like that. You know, you have to like figure out, you have to know a friend who drives. It's just different. Logistically, yep. everything's different in these, in, in these small towns. And I think when people, at least I felt with my friends, when we got our hands on something, like a friend of ours would get an issue of Thrasher and we would all read it, you know, or someone would get a copy of, um, of, uh, you know, any, any kind of music magazine or, uh, a mail order catalog, we would all order together from the same mail order catalog together, pool our money together. So like when everything felt, um, we were just so happy to have stuff and like, so stoked to discover stuff. It felt really, uh, it felt potent, I think for lack of a better word. It's very true. And that, like you were talking about that shared resources where it's like, if anybody found something, whether it was a catalog or like you said, all of these, you know, cultural artifacts, you all would bring it together and be like, dude, what's, yeah. you know, we got, we got to order from the very distro catalog or whatever the case may be in order to like make this totally. exciting. Totally. Yeah. 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 And, and, uh, you know, I was just going to say like when I moved, moved to a major city, like when I moved to Boston, I was just, I, I'll never forget coming, you know, coming up the subway and just being like, whoa, <laughs> like, <laughs> so like I can get around. Oh, what's that? You're like, I can get around here. And like, oh. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I can get around and there's so many people everywhere and cars everywhere. And just like, I can, you know, yeah. The, the accessibility of the city and, and the, uh, the potential for adventure was, um, <laughs> overwhelming, exciting. Sure. Sure. And so as you were kind of, you know, growing up with all these subcultures, uh, what does your family structure like look like in the house? Like, you know, mom and dad in the space, you know, brothers and sisters, and what kind of person did you find yourself, you know, sort of developing into as far as, you know, introvert, extrovert, the sort of stereotypical classifications? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I grew up, my, my mom and dad were together. Um, so I, and I lived in a house with a sibling. I had a, I had a sister, I have a sister. Um, and we all lived together. And I think I feel like my, I was definitely kind of a spaz, kind of an extrovert, like very hyper, very excited to get out and try stuff. Um, and, you know, I think as a child, I was probably a, a, a lot. I would say it was a lot, probably, uh, probably a terror. Um, but, uh, but I think that I also had a lot of, um, I had a lot of fear, I think like, uh, you know, I think just on a, on a personal note, I think I definitely had a lot of fear and a lot of, um, a lot of, uh, a, a real strong desire to fit in. So despite kind of the errors I was putting on and the confidence I was projecting, I think I really, I really wanted to find a, find a group and, um, and, uh, and, and, and feel part of for sure. Right, right. Well, and I think that, you know, that's definitely part and parcel for once you started, you know, junior high and high school, and you're just trying to find those connections, not only with people, but then to something that, you know, you can feel is a little bit larger than whatever group or community you're a part of. And so, yeah, I totally understand that, especially like when you are, when you do meet someone that you define as cool, whatever that may mean, and you're just like, so how do I unlock that? <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. It's like, you know, you would have, I had friends who had like older brothers or older sisters and they were just like, they were uh, like elders. Like, Oh my God, they have like, did you see their bedroom with all those cool posters and records? Like you can't go in there, stay out of, you know, stay out of my room, you know, or um, just, you know, ex- exposure to, you know, meeting, meeting someone cool and older back then was like amazing, but certainly having a, having a cohort of, of friends that you, that you loved and trusted was, um, 
was really great, especially at that age. And I was lucky enough to have kind of fallen in with a group of, um, a group of kids at my school and we all kind of went to shows together and it was yeah. fun. It was fun being a kid. Give me an R, give me an O, give me a C. No, I'm not going to spell out rockabilia because that would take me like this entire ad. But what I am going to do is give you 10% off of your order. Use this promo code 100 words or less, and it gets you 10% off your order at the finest purveyors of all things band merch on the internet, rockabilia.com. So again, promo code is 100 words or less. It gets you 10% off your order. I can't tell you how much fun it is to get lost on their website, but I will because this company is amazing, selling you officially licensed stuff from so many bands, hundreds and thousands of bands. I don't care what style of music you're into. You're going to find something that you will enjoy there and you will get 10% off when you use the promo code 100 words or less. I love this company so much. I continue to urge you to check out their website and I will do it until I am out of breath. <laughs> but thank you very much for your continued support, Rockabilia. And again, 100 words or less, promo code gets you 10% off. Let's go. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different things that stress us out, right? Like maybe it's something really, really small, like, man, that parking space, it's always taken. And I wish that I would be able to like get it instead of, you know, this person that maybe, you know, is the most courteous and considerate. I know that's something very random, but it's true. We all experience different things throughout the day that trigger us in so many different ways. And there are many times where I have been like, I wish that I had a a spot or a repository for me to, you know, get this stuff off of my chest. Because if you bottle it up, that is no bueno. And then all of a sudden you explode on a coworker or a friend or a family member being like the parking spot. And people are like, what are you talking about? That is where therapy comes in. And I love working with BetterHelp because I'm a huge advocate for therapy, broadly speaking. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, please give BetterHelp a try. It is so easy because it's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. All you do is fill out a brief questionnaire and then you get matched with a licensed therapist. And if you are not vibing with the therapist for any reason, you can switch it out at no additional charge. Get things off of your chest with BetterHelp. So visit betterhelp.com slash Ray today to get 10% off of your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash Ray. Did you care about school? Were you a sports dude? Like, how did you navigate those? those things. I, I was a, I was a quite a good student actually, but I hated sports. Um, I, I, I would do anything I could to get out of sports or fitness related activities, but I, I did them begrudgingly cause I had to. Um, but sure. yeah, I did, I did quite well academically. I, I would say I, I probably didn't apply myself hundred percent of the time. I was pretty lost in the clouds. Um, but, uh, but yeah, actually I did, I did quite well, I think. That's cool. And I, I, I didn't hear uh, brothers and sisters or were you an only child? Yeah, I had a, I have a sister. Yeah. Okay, got it. And uh, so uh, once you moved to Boston, I presume that was a family move for relocation for a job or something like that? Yeah, no, I, I, I moved to go to school. I had an aunt. Um, uh, I, my aunt and uncle lived in uh, Boston and I left Missouri to go to school there. Oh, okay. Got it. Got it. So you were yep. uh, ostensibly on your own, even though you did have supervision from a family member? Yep. Nice. Exactly. Yeah. And like you mentioned, you had already been, you know, exposed to DIY, punk, all that sort of stuff. I imagine it got kicked into high gear, like you said, once you got to Boston and started to experience all of the 
awesomeness that, you know, a larger city is able to open up. Were you uh, attracted by the idea of playing in a band right away? Did that, had that started in St. Louis or what did it more, t- you know, take more hold seriously once you got to Boston? Yeah, like I had actually started a band in St. Louis that was pretty, pretty bad. Uh, I think we were called Pac-Man. Ooh, um, that's good. that's a pretty good name, though. Yeah, and I, th- <laughs> I mean, no, pro- I, I can almost guess. I mean, is there a ska influence in that band? <laughs> Please, hopefully, maybe. I don't know. There, there, was, there wasn't. There wasn't. But um, okay, okay, all right. I just, I think it, 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 first band names are so indicative of usually like what it sounds like. My first band name was called Dube Society, and you can absolutely identify what we sounded like. So amazing. I just love it when you can trace a band sound. But anyways, Pac-Man was your first band. It's amazing. Yeah. yeah. Pac-Man, Pac-Man was the first band and, uh, God, at 14 or 15, maybe. Okay. Um, and, uh, 13, 14, 15, something. And, uh, yeah, we played at, uh, the roller rink saints roller rink in St. Louis, Missouri with a, the big band, uh, called at the time called fragile porcelain mice, uh, who were awesome. And, uh, yeah, we, we had like four or five songs. They were re- real bad. Um, I don't quite remember the names of any of them. But yeah, I really wanted to be in a band. You know, I, I think I, um, I I loved the idea of it. I wanted, to, I wanted to write music and hang out with my friends and play. So when I got to Boston, I, I didn't um, – I was going to shows. My first show in Boston was um, Seven Seconds with Lifetime at the Middle Ooh. East Downstairs. Um, and then I started going to hardcore shows and punk shows pretty frequently. Um, mat, uh, hardcore matinees, punk matinees at the Middle East and going to the Rat. Um, but, uh, you know, I was at school at the time. And, you know, if I could make it to a show, awesome. If I couldn't, you know, I couldn't. Um, but, you know, hanging out on the weekends uh, in the city. It wasn't until after uh, – it wasn't until like the summer before I started college that uh, that I ended up – um, actually a senior year of high school, I met, cause I was hanging out with Sam and from the trouble, uh, who ended up going into the, he, he moved, he went on to be an explosion. And then Mike, uh, from the trouble, I met those kids in the pit pretty much going okay. to shows. And we started the trouble in our senior year of high school, but we were called Saturday's kids. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. And we played the battle of the bands at Belmont high, so we would actually practice in this kid Joe's basement or in Sam's basement, I think. Um, and then after the battle of the bands and which we lost, um, we, uh, we ended up changing our name and we played our first show um, at a, at a church in, in off Harvard Ave in Cambridge. I forget the, not Harvard Ave, Mass Ave. I forget the name of the church. It wasn't the first and second. Um, and we changed our name to The Trouble, and then we kind of s- started getting a little bit more serious because Sam, you know, Sam said, "Hey, I can get us our, we can get on this, this show with, you know, Blood for Blood, or I think that, I think that uh, Ken will put us on this Dropkick show if we practice." And uh, and so this is '96, mm-hmm. and um, and uh, I'm like, "Oh shit, maybe we, you know, let's give this a shot." So we ended up getting a practice space in Charlestown, and trying to do this thing. And that's kind of how it all started. Nice. And were you, what were you studying in school that, I mean, cause clearly like moving away and like going to Boston, like there was, you know, a, a, I guess life path that was unfolding itself to you, or was it just kind of, you know, you wanted to spread your wings a bit? 
Yeah, I mean, I wish that I was a little bit more self-directed, but I was in school for graphic design. Okay. Um, and uh, I never, unfortunately, I never finished. I got, uh, <laughs> you know, long story short, a few years into college, I got hired to work at one of my teacher's companies or teacher's uh, husband's company. Okay. So I ended, I ended up leaving school to work for my professor's husband's company in Cambridge. <laughs> Dude, uh, that's, that's so uh, good to be like just the, the talent pool that exists. It's like, hey, Gibby's pretty good at this. Should he graduate? No, no, no. He should come work for us. <laughs> she was, she, you know, it, to her credit, she told me not to leave school. She's like, I feel terrible that you're doing this. Um, oh, that's uh, good. Yeah. Uh, but, um, you know, very uh, – very cool decision at the time to kickstart my uh, professional career. Um, but uh, in hindsight, maybe I should have just stuck around and finished, you know, finished the degree. But uh, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, with, to be fair with graphic design, you know, the your portfolio carries even more weight than a piece of paper saying you're smart to graduate from the school or whatever. <laughs> yeah, I, pre- I appreciate that. You know, I think like I, I was a. Uh, it was um, there was a lot going on at that time. I think. Um, just for me personally, the, the, um, the music stuff, um, and, uh, and then just being super, um, swept away by everything that was happening in technology. So, you know, prior to working there, I was working at a company called Bowman design in Boston and we were working on the actual, actually one of our clients was Zildjian drums. So we were doing the Zildjian website. Um, and, uh, I was doing a radio show at Boston university in the basement of, the the, um, the, uh, uh, Miles Standish building in Kenmore Square, right across from the Rat. Wow! Um, I don't know. It was awesome. I was having a lot of fun, but um, I was really like really thinking a lot about what was happening happening, um, you know, with technology and everything that was going on. So that I felt that I could not. I think there was a part of me that felt like I was um, that school really wasn't teaching what I wanted to learn at that moment. So. You know, at that time, like I think my generation, your generation may have been the last generation that existed before the internet um, or, or sorry, that's not <laughs> the infancy of the internet. Yes. The inf- totally. Sorry. We're the, we're the generation that experienced the before and after. Right. Yep. Um, and uh, aside from our parents, right. Like we, we were, we were the kids that had experience, had childhood God, I'm trying to word this properly. We are the generation that had our childhood split in half by the internet. At least I, I am. Like I was in college when kind of the internet really became accessible. Um, and I think that the generations that came after us pretty much grew up with it. So we we kind of have a a memory of what it was like to not have to, – to what I call logging on, which is what we used to do. Yep. Um, you know, we would set aside time to log on to the internet and use it as a utility. And now it's something that we are always on and we carry in our pocket. So this was happening like this. I felt this thing happening. And I, and I think there was a part of me that felt like, Hey, like I can't learn. I need to do this now because this is happening now. I can't. So part of like, part of my decision to leave school was um, a, a feeling of directionlessness. I certainly I'll admit that, but also just, I felt like I had to catch this wave and do this internet thing and, 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 and yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think that's really people that get attracted where it's like you, you are involved in a subculture and, you know, DIY playing in bands. Like there is all of that, that is exciting and you put so much energy towards, but then there's also, you know, not for everybody, but there is that sort of itch of like, 
well, I mean, that's cool. And that's going to be a, you know, focal point for the rest of my life, whether I'm actively participating or just, you know, watching bands, <laughs> whatever. But just yeah. that I but just that idea that there is something else like beyond that that still has that still scratches that itch of just, you know, doing it yourself. And like that was clearly what the internet was <laughs> at the beginning and building websites, all that stuff was just like hey, uh, you know, learn a few simple lines of code and then be able to deploy something that most people are just like, oh my God, I don't even know what that is. That's crazy. Yeah, it really was like the DIY dream, right? Like if you could if you could figure out how to do a website, like the first thing I did was create like a, a band website or a website for my friend's band. And then I created like a personal website where I posted like my writing or like, I guess it would be a blog now. Um, and then eventually was super inspired by the Trackstar Records website where they had this, these guys and girls personals. And I was like, Whoa, this is, this is kind of cool. Like what if this, there was a whole website dedicated where people could kind of like log in and post their profile and talk right. to one another and meet one another. And that kind of became the beginning of, of makeout club, which was like 99. Yeah. Which is wild, which we'll, we'll get there in a moment. But the, um, I know Boston around that time, like, I mean, all throughout the 90s and then, you know, arguably into the 2000s was a notoriously violent scene. I mean, this is coming from a person who experienced, you know, Southern California uh, as far as punk and hardcore is concerned. But, you know, (laughs) it always the the reputation of Boston always preceded itself. Did you uh, I I presume that you either directly experience it or tangentially experience that? Uh, You know, how is that kind of filtering through your uh, your lens? Yeah, I mean, Boston was certainly a, a violent city, uh, generally violent and a little bit scary. Um, but I think shows were also shows popped off <laughs> pretty yeah. pretty easily. Um, I, I don't I don't know I don't know that at the time I thought that any, much of it. Um, it was just like something that you had to reckon with and it was part of the thing that you were involved in, but you know, you just tried to steer clear of it as much as you could. Yeah. I think that's probably a good way of putting it. Yeah. I think like it, it just, I remember, I remember shows. Um, I remember just generally the scene having an aspect of violence to it and, and the city just being kind of, kind of an undercurrent of anxiety and energy at times. Um, but I don't like, I, I suppose what I mean is at the time I didn't notice it. Like at the time it just, it was part of the ambient background of the first big city I moved to, you know, like I was like, Oh, this is how it is. <laughs> you know right. what I mean? That's true. I mean th- that saying, you don't know what you don't know. And like, if that is where you were seeing shows and you're just like, oh, yeah, well, you know, people get beat up here. And uh, as long as I'm not the target of it, then I'll just be okay. <laughs> yeah. I think certainly there was, there were, there were some, some shows and some venues that were more notorious than others. Um, and, uh, you know, there was, I, I would, you would rarely see violence if you were going to see like Fugazi at mass art or like, you know, the, 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 there were, there were, there were certainly hot spots of, you know, where stuff was going on. And, um, you know, the, the informed show goer could, could, uh, could Bob and weave, I think. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Yeah. <laughs> right. It's like, I, I know what areas of the club to avoid the sort of people where it's like, okay, I'm, you know, not not going to get in the pit when these people are in here. <laughs> right. And uh, so once the once the trouble started to, you know, play shows, and you started to I- experience what that was like on a more quote, unquote, serious level, uh, were you immediately 
taken by it? Did you, you know, enjoy singing and fronting a band or was that a, a learning process for you? I think, um, you know, the trouble, um, I, I loved it from the beginning. I think we all did, you know, um, Sam was a great songwriter. Um, Mike and Mac, you know, all these guys had played in other bands. Um, I think Mac was in uh, a band called, uh, or maybe it was Mike. I think Mike and Mac. I forget which of them were in, uh, were in was in Disgruntled Postal Workers, um, which was a band that had members that went on to be in a Suicide File. Um, and so, you know, I think everybody had had kind of experience at least playing in, in some kind of band, except for maybe me and Sam. Um, and uh, yeah, I dug it. You know, I loved it. Um, I think I was blown away by the, the, uh, the traction that I think we got early on. And um, I, I wouldn't go so far as to say I, I took it for granted, but I, I, I definitely, I, I, uh, I remember just being like, feeling like maybe, you know, maybe we're, maybe this is just kind of the scene, you know, like this is cause there was so much going on at that time. Um, the late nineties, especially 96, 97, 98, Right. It was, it was like Dropkick Murphys were coming out. Rancid was on tour all the time. Like uh, the Unseen, Annie Flag, um, uh, like all the, like Ducky Boys, uh, Blood for Blood, you know, demo dropped. Like all this, I mean, there's all this stuff. I think all of these bands playing and we were playing all the time together. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there was just an immediate like kind of built-in scene in Boston where the, where, um, turnouts were awesome and the shows were packed. So it was pretty, I mean, it was always fun. Um, and, uh, and always wild. And we didn't really play outside of Boston ever. I, we would play in Portsmouth, New Hampshire at this place called the Elvis room. We played in Ithaca, New York once. And then we played one show in Atlanta, um, at this, uh, at this like punk fest. Oh, wow. I, I, I mean, I knew that you guys didn't make it out to the West Coast. I just didn't know that your travel was so, I guess, limited in scope. No. Yeah. Like we, I don't know what, why. I mean, this is like pre, pretty much early, early internet kind of, but we, uh, we were booked to play at Coney Island High in New York once and we like didn't make it for some reason. I mean, we were pretty bad. Like we barely made it to half the shows we had in Boston. Like we would, at one <laughs> point I didn't go to a show and the, at the time the singer of Blood for Blood sang for for me and uh i think we would not have a we would show up without equipment just kind of expect to use other people's gear yeah it was we weren't we weren't great but um which is that you saying that like literally makes me vomit in my mouth because i think anybody that's played (laughs) played in a band where it's like you have the you know one out of two or two out of four showing up be like you know drummers like hey do you have symbols it's like oh god come on dude we were yeah yeah we we were were like that kind of um yeah which is okay (laughs) we were a mess you know but we were we were we were a good mess and we had a lot of fun um Right. It was great. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with a king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If 
if you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President, Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Check the back seat. Check the back seat. All right, come here. Check the back seat. Gets in your head, right? Good. Because every year, dozens of children are forgotten in the backseat of a car by a parent or caregiver. All never thought it could happen to them. But with changes in routines, distractions, or a sleeping child, it can happen to anyone. Parked cars get hot fast and can be deadly. So get it in your head. Check the backseat. A message from NHTSA and the Ad Council. Like you were talking about where I I do appreciate you, uh, you know, kind of pulling the through lines of like, okay, I was interested in technology, you know, I was interested in, you know, music and playing in bands and stuff. The, um, and I know that that specific area, Boston was also exploding as far as, you know, the, uh, the, the tech scene, as it were, even though most people point to Silicon Valley as, you know, being, you know, the, the mothership for everything. Um, and so as you started to just like really become immersed in, you know, design, web design, and like you said, the, the community aspect of how people could meet online and then, you know, the launch of, of Makeout Club, because I mean, it's, I find it funny and I'm sure you do too, that people, that name still resonates with people because like that, you know, talk about the annals of internet history. It's like, <laughs> no, no one should remember it, but they do. Um, yeah. And so, so for you, as it started to, you know, as you launched it and you started seeing people getting attracted to it, um, was it, um, I'm sure it was exciting for a certain period of time. And then when did you feel like it kind of switched to be this, you know, untenable, unmanageable thing that you were like, okay, like this is way too, you know, much for me, or did you ever get that? (laughs) I feel like it, I mean, it really like blew up very quickly and and there were a few things, there were a few like catalysts for that. I mean, one, it, it, the beginning was all word of mouth and you're going to laugh when I tell you this, but there was no database for like the first year. And, <laughs> and so for your, for your listeners at home that, that might not realize what that means from an impact perspective, it was entirely front end, meaning that when somebody wanted a profile on Makeout Club, they couldn't log in and create the profile themselves they would email me or one of the admins with their picture attached to the email and their profile text. And then I would just hand code their (laughs) profile in HTML on the page in a table. And that's how it existed. And it's like MVP format for like, for like 99 into early 2000. And then we got a team kind of built up of mostly like volunteers and kids that would just, you know, work for peanuts because there was no money because the website wasn't monetized I had no idea what I was doing. I didn't know how to run a business. I didn't know how to run a website. Um, I just had this idea and, um, and it was really like total DIY, like group of kids coming around. There was a lot of kids that helped out. Like, and I say kids lovingly cause a, we were kids and then also just the, you know, hardcore kids and punk kids coming through and like, um, it was fun. And then there was spin magazine wrote an article about it. I think in 2001, and then there was there was like a, the spin effect where it's just like fifty thousand signups in one day, um, which to think about that is mind blowing. That a print magazine yep. could positively affect 
the usership of a, of a social media website. So this is like, you can tell just from that particular tidbit, that little story, how small internet adoption was at the time, how tiny the internet was at the time for a, for a print magazine to affect a website. So um, when I say that it blew up, I'm, you know, I, I don't think, I think Makeout Club probably at its height didn't even have 500,000 users, certainly not active users at once. Mm-hmm. So the entire internet was, was teeny tiny compared, compared to what it is um, today. But um, I don't think to answer your question, I don't think at any time I really felt overwhelmed by it, but I certainly, it, it, it certainly got to the point where I couldn't do it alone and I had some help and um, I ended up meeting a great team um, in Los Angeles around 2003 um, who I joined forces with uh, a company called IndieClick um, and, uh, and we worked together uh, to like, you know, redesign uh, Makeout Club and improve the hosting and sort of the, the underpinnings of the technology and infrastructure of the website. But um, I would say like around that time, it was like the, the spin article. And then there was a few times where it had, the website went down because like the host, I couldn't afford the hosting. So the biggest struggle for me was figuring out how to like keep it afloat and mm-hmm. like, how do you monetize you know, now I work, <laughs> now I work in online, you know, I do the record label, but I also work in online um, advertising and I have for 20 years. And um, this was sort of my, my crash course into like, how do you monetize a website? You know, do you charge a membership? Totally. Uh, do you add banners? No, do those work? And, and what's the, you know, how do you charge for those daily, monthly? Like I had no understanding of, of CPM based advertising or like how that worked. So a lot of challenges and a lot of like, crashing into the walls, back zigzagging across the track, trying to figure out how to do this thing. Um, and then on 2003, Friendster popped up and then 2004, MySpace. Um, and so very quickly, I saw the landscape change um, as social media began to take shape. Um, it was a very strange, strange place to be in. But I think that Makeout Club until the end, which was, I think, 2016, New Year's 2016, always sort of held its own as a niche, a niche community. And I don't think that anyone um, from, from, from the mainstream or anyone who didn't identify with subculture. I mean, it was right there on the homepage. If you went to make out club, you, you knew that it, it felt very much like a, a record store or like a, you know, totally. like an, indie, an indie type of, yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, it's like, I mean, you know, people, <laughs> and this is a deep cut, but just like people looking at, you know, vampirefreaks.com or whatever. And just like, yes, that, that like well, while that is obviously a specific slice of subculture, that is you know less approachable than Makeout Club, which is you know casting a wider net. But at the same time, it's like you know there's there's that titillation you know based on the title of not only Makeout Club but Vampire Freaks or whatever. But at the same time, you're only appealing to a certain you know type of person, whereas like you know social media is meant for you know there's everything for everybody. But it's like yeah, to your point, there was a curation in who should be accessing this, not like from a gatekeeper perspective, but just like who's going to trip across this. Yeah. It was kind of the college radio station, late night, you know, indie college radio station website version of a website, like very clearly for indie rock kids and hardcore kids and alternative music kids and subculture people. And yeah, that was kind of the vibe. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Absolutely. 
and, and kind of hitting um, on the the panic side of things because I mean you, you know you you did more than uh, you know you did with the trouble as far as like shows and releases and you know, worked with Bridge Nine and I know going over to Europe a couple of times and forging a relationship with Reflection Records. Um, there was um, I, I'm sure in regards to like playing you know once you guys started to like play fests and play even larger shows than the trouble did. Um, was there ever any uh, sort of path to consideration of like, oh, I'm going to, you know, just like focus on the band as like, you know, even though you were clearly doing graphic design and everything else on this on the quote unquote side, um, was there ever an idea that you wanted to this to be your life from, you know, being a band dude? Or was that always just kind of on the outside? No, I, there was never a time where I wanted to be a full time um, that I wanted to do a band full time. And I think that um, that probably was a bone of contention um certainly with the trouble uh and and maybe with panic although i think that with panic i think we from from very early on i think that um and i apologize to my bandmates if if i'm misremembering this or if my interpretation is incorrect but i i feel like i remember there being a feeling of being like hey we'll do like an ep and we'll tour and but especially after I moved to New York, I, I, which happened shortly after the band formed 2001 or 2002. Um, I don't think everybody was super thrilled with that, but we did another EP. We ended up touring um, a few times. Uh, but I think everyone, um, most of the, most of the kids in panic, most of the guys in panic were students um, uh, or working full time. Um, it, it, uh, it was something that I wanted to continue to do no matter what. Um, I just didn't, I was focused on the internet stuff and makeup club and sort of my career path at that time. And, um, right. And and didn't want to, didn't want to let that go. I did as, I did as much as, you know, I felt like perhaps my stubbornness, um, um, worked against me, but yeah, I, I I always wanted to perform in a band and, and keep that, part of me going, uh, because I enjoyed it and I loved it and I love the guys so much. Um, I think in many ways, maybe that's why I started a record label, um, because I could stay connected to that. Um, right. That, that yeah. side of things. Yeah. That's more, yeah, it's more manageable, especially like, you know, at that time, like, even though there was, you know, not a clear roadmap for, you know, hardcore bands turning into, you know, quote unquote pro core, whatever you want to call it. But like, right. that was, that was still a very far off uh, notion. And the idea that if you were a full-time touring band, you know, you were spending the only way that you could, you know, sort of hand to mouth, take care of yourself was by being, you know, on the road 260 days out of the year. So it's not like yeah. you could have launched a career off the top of that. Yeah. And, you know, I had some very successful friends that, that did it, that were full-time musicians. And there was certainly a part of me that wondered. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I, I suppose in the end, uh, I didn't have what it takes or it wasn't for me. The timing wasn't right. I fantasized about it for sure. Sure. Yeah. yeah. No, you're just a loser, KB. It's okay. I'm just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> you're like, yeah, no, I agree. No. <laughs> um, <laughs> And so, like you said, you moved to Los Angeles, you know, you joined up with, uh, with Indie Click, which, you know, I think most people that worked in the, you know, digital record label, like Indie Click was definitely, you know, a very uh, reputable thing. Uh, was it a, a big shock from you kind of moving, you know, from the East Coast to the West Coast um, and kind of integrating yourself within, you know, how independent music sort of operated over here? 
Yeah. I mean, it was cool. It, it, it was definitely shocking for me because I was with makeup club. I was working from home. I was living in New York. I was DJing. I was playing in a band. Um, my life was a little bit, uh, more, uh, shoot from the hip, a little, a little loose. Um, and certainly I was in charge of my day-to-day schedule. Um, I got, I got hired to work at IndieClick. So I moved out to LA in 2005 to join the team, um, to both develop, um, Makeout Club is a very small portion of that, but also just to work full time on um, on the ad network and the the um, the client projects that they were working on, which were super exciting. Um, I jumped at the opportunity, uh, and um, and when I got to LA, I hated it. I, I couldn't, I couldn't. I was terrified. I just couldn't. I, I it really just shell shocked. Um, I think part of that was I was. Uh, newly sober. So I had quit, uh, drinking to in the end of 2004. Part of that was that I was, I suddenly found myself in an office eight hours a day. Um, and at a desk. And I think, uh, I was also just in a completely new area with a completely new geography. I had to have a car, um, you know, to get around and I, I didn't, I didn't know anybody. So I, I think for the first few years I was, uh, I was pretty, pretty, pretty miserable. And I think the, um, especially with being sober, the, the connective tissue, the, the, the lubrication of alcohol and partying and having a nightlife was gone, um, and replaced with AA meetings and, uh, you know, world of Warcraft. So, um, my, (laughs) my, uh, my social sphere changed. Um, I love LA. I live here. I've lived here. (laughs) I haven't left. Um, you know, I met my wife here and I, uh, I'm yeah. totally settled in with deep roots here now, but it was uh, it was total shell shock for me at first. Yes, yeah, big acclimation process. Yeah, uh, and I mean, I appreciate you you know sharing the the sober journey because I, I mean that especially that time frame of everything that you were talking about with New York DJ playing in bands like you know the whole indie sleaze scene like there's all of that transpiring and you know there's a lot of people that you know, did not make it out, quote unquote, and, you know, just ended up either completely leaving every aspect of that life behind and transitioning out of it. Uh, right. But for but for you to kind of be able to still travel alongside of it while not getting so pulled, you know, in that direction to be like, oh, yeah, the only way I can, you know, uh, function throughout the day is, you know, a, a few Percocets and some, you know, some painkillers <laughs> to, to get through the day or whatever. It's just like not yeah. saying that that was your routine, but you know what I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. You know, I, in AA, they call that people, places and things, you know, like keeping a distance from, from the triggers or the things that make you want to drink. I think for me, it was difficult to, to be around bars and clubs for a while, but you know, that dissipates, I think the further you put yourself away from, from that last drink um, and the more active you are in whatever path of sobriety you choose. Um, right. But um, you know, for me, it was all about staying active Um and, uh, and I, I, I always wanted to be connected to art and technology. And so here I was, you know, in LA and while my social sphere may have been a little bit smaller, I was really fulfilled with, um, you know, art and tech. So, you know, I think it was a few years after it was in 2007 that we ended up launching the record label, but the first few years that I was here, um, kind of learning the ropes and getting acclimated to the city, I was, um, just, I just dove into the work, um, and, uh, and was really grateful for the opportunity. Sure. Um, yeah, that, was, that, that was your flotation cool. device. 
Totally. And it was just cool. I mean, the internet back then was wild, man. <laughs> it was wild. Totally, totally. And, and like you mentioned, you starting the label in 2007, and obviously is still going strong. And it's, it's so interesting to look at your and Ryan's point of view and sort of musical evolution of like, because I, you know, maybe I have this mythos put up in my own head, but I think that, you know, people that travel through the, you know, punk, hardcore, indie rock world, whatever you want to call it, and then decide to pursue something that is also attached to it, but maybe not like musically influenced by it. Um, there's always that, that tissue that exists where it's like, yeah, pe- weird people doing weird things in front of, you know, hopefully weird people. <laughs> and yeah, I love that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think that that's why people like, you know, why you've been able to develop this, this cult following around the record label that, you know, cause very few labels have that identity that, you know, whatever I say, victory records in the mid nineties, like that means something. It's like the bulldog, damn dude. You know, where it's like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, dude. <laughs> you know, it's like people don't care Perfect. about record labels now, but like there is still that, you know, there are a few labels that have that. And I, I think your, your label does have that. Um, I'm, I'm going to guess that that is kind of an unintended consequence of the sort of music that you guys have put out because it's all sort of, you know, through your and Ryan's own personal lens of like, yo, we just like this music and we got to get it out there. Yeah. I mean, I, to hear you say that's very flattering. Um, I, I didn't, I, I mean, for me, like, yeah, the, the victory bulldog totally. Um, and I think other big labels for me, growing up where I was a fan of the label, not just the bands on the label because I was into a bunch of different shit it was obviously like factory records, teen beat records, K records, and, um, you know, everything, everything like, you know, four AD and cherry red and like all these labels that had like a sound that had like a look, a vibe, you know? And, um, I, I feel like, for us, Ryan and I, we, we say that we, we just want to put out objects that we ourselves want to own and we're genre agnostic. So like, we don't, we don't just put out anything, any, you know, any, any, any specific type, any specific sound. We're not an industrial label or an experimental label, although we put out plenty of that. Um, we just put out stuff we love. And our only rule is like, Hey, we both have to, we have to have time for it. Like we, we have to have the bandwidth for it, which is tougher and tougher these days. Um, but we both have to love it, you know? And I think like, um, if people think about Deus in that way, the way that I felt about the labels that I grew up liking, like where I just trusted the label, I loved the image of it, the vibe. Um, that's, an, that's an honor. Like we've succeeded. Right. Like that, that is your, and this is going to sound cheesy, but like, that's your North star where it's like, as long as it's filtered through this lens, then that is what we are going to put out. Yeah. I think, yeah, I think the North stars, North stars are a really good way of putting it. Like I, I feel, um, financial success is, uh, is all, is all good, whatever. But the point of the label for Ryan and I was always, um, a labor of love. And the fact that we're doing stuff that other people vibe with, that other people connect with is just like, it's just pure gratitude. Like we're kind of blown away. I think, right. um, yeah, it's, it's, it's been a wild trip. 
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. My simple solution to the problem was remove people from the scene and help them feel safer. In response to attacks against Asian Americans, Maddie Park raised over $250,000 to donate cab rides to the Asian community. There is so much more work to be done. We really need to come together and tackle this issue as a community. Support the Asian community. Learn how at lovehasnolabels.com. Brought to you by Love Has No Labels and the Ad Council. With all of this, too, I mean, clearly playing in a band, like there's a business aspect to that, you know, even if it's just, hey, I got to order some merch and, you know, figure out what to charge kids for <laughs> that merch at a show. And then clearly there was a, you know, business component to Makeout Club as well. Were you always comfortable with the business side of things or is that a muscle you had to develop over time? God, dude, that's a good question. I, I was not at all comfortable with the business side of things. I, w- I failed miserably at it. Um, repeatedly, uh, you know, I think with makeup club, um, there were uh, a lot of drop balls, um, and a lot of missed opportunities with, with makeup club, certainly and just a lot of, um, just a lot of missing, missing chapters in the book of business. Like if I could go back in time, I probably, you know, would have, would have gone to, you know, business school. Um, but, uh, it was definitely a muscle that I had to develop over time. And I think that my experience at IndieClick was, was, super important there. I kind of got thrown into the deep end right when I landed in LA um, and was meeting with clients and working on projects that were, uh, that were um, big, you know, with, with, with risk. And, uh, and I wanted to succeed so badly that I just didn't really sleep. And, uh, and I tried to learn everything I could Um, with, with Deus records, you know, I think it was really a product of, um, of DIY. And I, and I, you know, there's that, um, I, there's sort of the collective of DIY where, you know, you're surrounded by people who are helping and everyone's doing the same, you know, everyone's, everyone wants you to succeed. And I feel like that was really like a big part of our kickoff. Like when we started the label, we, I literally Googled how to, how to run or how to start a record label, how to put out a record. Like, what are the parts we need? Like how much money do we need? Like, what can we split our credit cards on this? Like, how are we going to make this work? Um, and there were so many people that came out. Like I called like Trey from death wish and Chris Wren from bridge nine and Calvin from K records and um, Leo from canine and like all these people and Ryan called a bunch of his buddies and we got like feedback from like just great information, like great advice from all these people that were willing to share their knowledge and their, their lessons learned with us. And that um, was instrumental in building sort of the foundation on how to do stuff. We we flipped and flopped all over the place, like trying to figure out how to make it work. 
um, and how to turn it into a viable business. You know, up until just a few years ago, we were still driving around. I was still driving records down to Amoeba and vacation and Mount Analog and selling two or three records at a time, probably burning more on gas than I was and making money on the records. But that's how you do it. You know, you, you hoof it and you, you go door to door and you, you, you raise awareness of what you're doing and you hope people catch on. Right. Um, yeah. You don't, you don't need to sell records on consignment, but you still need to drive them down there. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's whatever it took, you know? And I think like, yeah, there's, I don't know, we're still learning, you know, like I think, um, and, and the landscape's changing rapidly, you know, business is changing, the streaming's changing, uh, online distribution's changing, the internet connectivity's changing, you know, there's a new platform every fucking week, you know, it's just, it's, um, it's crazy. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And kind of on that thing, um, or on that tip, the idea that you've probably had to encounter these, you know, really interesting business propositions, whether it's like, oh, this, you know, artist is going to get a sink in the newest Ford commercial or like, oh, like, do, you know, do, do we do this, you know, less than conventional business thing, uh, just because this will get, you know, more exposure for our band or whatever the case may be. I'm sure there's mm-hmm. interesting, it doesn't even have to be a financial implication, but I'm sure there are funny scenarios that have been put in your desk that you, you know, have said yes to or no to alternatively, um, that you just never thought you'd be in that scenario <laughs> to like either say yes or no to, uh, when I say that, does that, uh, does do any memories come to your mind in regards to that? I, I'm not sure I could share any specifics, but there, yep. there have been, um, there have been things that we've passed on that were um, probably eye popping from a financial perspective, from, from a revenue perspective, but just, that just didn't make sense. Um, and, uh, and, and it, you know, there's also been things that have come through that um, didn't really make sense financially, but were so unique and strange that we, we had to do them, you know? So I, I, I think that, the larger you get as a label and the more exposure your artists have. And really these all, these, the artists are, are take all the credit for this. I mean, we were, we are nothing clearly um, without our roster of artists who are, who are the ones that get, get, get the attention in the first place. But um, you know, it, the larger you get, the more, the more unique opportunities come in the door. And there's, there's certainly been, there's certainly been some odd ones. Yeah. I wish I could talk more about it, but no, no, it's okay. Yeah. And that it's not, it's not from a, um, you know, like dishing business dirt, but it's just like those, those circumstances are so interesting just because it does give people, you know, a peek behind, not, not like trying to establish credibility. Oh, dude, we said no to like $400,000 cause this company sucks or whatever, just like that. Right. But just the fact that this opportunity would have even come, you know, as a, as a consideration set for you to be like, I guess we have to say no to this. It feels right to say no, but like, wow, I can't even believe they asked us to do this. Yeah. I mean, there's flat, it's certainly flattering. Like there is, there is definitely a sense as your business grows, when you, um, when doors open to, to cool opportunities like that, I think, you know, sinking to film and to television is one of those sort of exciting milestones. And when it happened for us, we were thrilled. I think like we all watched it, um, you know, like, Oh, it's a song. It's playing in the background, you know, for three seconds. Um, yeah, of course. Like that's, that's exciting. Cool. Yeah. I think for us, it just, it just has to, and it just has to, it has to make sense. And ultimately we leave it up to the artist. Um, and if the artist doesn't feel comfortable with the offer or um, doesn't feel like the song is best represented by what's happening visually or, you know, then pitch it. No, it's not for us. Pass. Yeah. Thanks. But no, thanks. Right. Yeah. Uh, 
And uh, the, the last thing I want to hit on was the fact that, you know, you are still passionate about not only music, but then, you know, tech and being able to follow these things that you've been passionate about, you know, your whole life. Not everybody gets to do that from a sort of career perspective, but then also, you know, sustain the interest because there's definitely, and I'm sure you've seen many of your peers kind of fall away from like, oh yeah, like, you know, I don't listen to that stuff anymore because that's like kid stuff or whatever. <laughs> like, right. What what keeps you, um, I guess, connected and engaged beyond the simple fact that you know the record label is a uh, entity within your life that you you know ostensibly have to pay attention to? But I guess it's in simplest terms, what keeps you connected? Uh, curiosity, um, and 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 like the search, the ultimate search for the chills. Like you know, the chills you get when you like hear that song and you're just like, Oh my God, like the hair on your neck stands up and you're just like, that's so good. Like I still get that, you know, I, I just still get that. And, um, and, uh, I, I still get really excited about music and, and certainly like I'm going through a bossa nova phase, um, a Brazilian jazz phase right now. Um, I I'm, I'm listening to stuff right now that, uh, I, I go through like several weeks to several months spurts of just diving into some new, a genre new to me and, and just exploring stuff. And I'm like, uh, I, I just am seeking, always seeking stuff and, 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 and couldn't imagine not being connected to music. Um, so my point is, I think like the stuff I listen to is probably changing um, and has changed. Uh, but my love, my love for music and, and art and technology hasn't really, when it comes to, to Deus records, um, we get sent so much, like we get sent so many um, demos. We used to be able to write everyone back. Uh, and then we, we, we tried to listen to everything, but we couldn't really write everybody back. And now we, we, we sometimes we struggle to even listen to everything that gets sent to us, but we try to. Um, so that's like a really great w- way to kind of hear and, f- and feel what's happening right now, which I think is, is super important. And also just, I keep my mouth shut and I listen um, and we got a lot of people on the label that are living a lot of different places and are uh, representative of a lot of different backgrounds and ages. And I just listen when they share stuff. And, um, and a lot of times they bring some pretty amazing uh, music through that just blows my mind. You know, I wouldn't, there was no other way that I was going to hear this, you know, band from this town opening up for this person, you know, 3000 miles away or whatever. But so just remaining open and, and interested and engaged and, and giving everybody time listening, you know, I think, uh, I never want to, I never want to not be involved in, in, in music or tech. It's kind of, I think all this could be said about technology too. I, I read all the tech blogs and I'm, I try to stay up to speed with the latest, you know, technologies and gadgets and stuff when I can, you know, all that stuff is just fun. It's, I'm just a kid. I don't know. I'm just like a kid at heart. Like, Yeah. Well, I, I think that that is really, I mean, not only from just the following curiosity, I think that's a, a good articulation of it, but I think especially too, where when you are involved in a culture, not only, you know, from the whatever independent music world, but then, you know, technology, those are often quote unquote young people's games, you know, but I think there's a way to stay gracefully involved and not look like, you know, the dusty old person inside of a, you know, room full of kids that are, you know, 20 years younger than them, but you can, I mean, which that happens and that's fine, (laughs) but just the idea of what you're, of what you're talking about, just like being open to, oh yeah, like my, 
my taste is important to me, but that doesn't need to be like the ultimate, you know, arbiter for every it's like i need to be open to other inputs otherwise then you do become that you know old man get off my lawn scenario yeah i mean i think like when i was younger and you know i there was i i have certainly experienced a lot of like gatekeeping and a lot of snooty record store clerks and you know a lot just the 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 highfalutin academic indie scene you know like there was just a lot of a lot of that and i just i, I fucking can't stand that shit um but I, it, I think the, the older I get, um, the more I realize how much I, I might have uh, missed out on by, uh, by, by being too stuck on the rails as, as, a, as a youngster, you know, just kind of too, yeah. too, too genre agnostic, you know what I mean? Um, but, uh, but yeah, I don't know. I, I, it blows my mind that I'm 44 years old. I got to be honest. I, it, and I think everybody probably says this. Um, yeah. Yeah. Know, no. <laughs> well, it, it is funny to that point of just the the idea of listening to new stuff that is created by, you know, teenagers that could still connect to a person who is much older and can like maybe place the band sonically easier where it's like, "Oh yeah, I see why this band kind of sounds like this because they, you know, are putting all these other sounds together." But that doesn't make that goosebump feeling that you talk about any different for you know a young person than an old person it's like it's still there yeah totally yeah, yeah. And it, it is weird when i think about the people that i grew up idolizing the the artists and musicians that i grew up idolizing i um am not twice as old as they were when they recorded that music like that right. when i think about stuff like that it kind of blows my mind a little bit but i try not to think about it right totally or that idea like the bands that you were watching you know, as you were in your teenage years and being like, man, they're so much older than me. And then you look at their ages and you're like, oh, so they're only three years older than me. Oh, okay. Yeah. That feels yeah, yeah. 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 Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, you're like, that my, uh, yeah. My friend, um, my friend, Josh, Josh, uh, Eustace from telephone Tel Aviv. I was working at other music record store. They had a short lived Boston location in Harvard square. And I, I worked there for about a year. And, um, the year that, uh, Fahrenheit Fair Enough came out and um, just big album. And I remember hearing that and just being like, whoa, this, these guys are fucking crazy, man. Right. They, must, they must be like just so like these European dudes, just like older. They're probably like 40 or 50. In my mind, they were like, you know, wearing like weird sweaters. or something. I don't, They were like in a dusty like library. I don't know where. I don't know. It, they were just like super like way beyond, you know, just wizards. I don't know what older, certainly older is what I thought. And so when I finally met Josh from Telephone Tel Aviv and he was like my exact age, I think we're separated by like a month. I was like, wait, what? What? Like, your music sounded so, just sounded so impossibly advanced and out of reach and nothing that I could possibly do. Like I was right. like, like, and it, wow. Yeah. Yeah. You're like, listen, I'm sitting here yelling into a microphone <laughs> And yeah. you're creating this like, you know, sonic texture that will live on for decades. And yeah. I, what the fuck, I, man, totally. I'll, I'll maybe live in the, you know, used bins of record stores, you know, I mean, yeah, <laughs> and, but yeah, I, I totally understand that, that spectrum yeah. that you're looking at where it's like, yeah. how the hell did you do this, dude? Yeah. It's funny. Yeah. Well, Gibby, thank you so much for spending time with me. I really appreciate you, uh, you know, going down memory lane and, uh, you know, putting all the tracks together, so to speak. Yeah, no, I, I'm honored to have been asked. And, and thanks for the great questions. I had a lot of fun talking. 
Thank you very much to Gibby and his uh, publicist for hooking this up. It's always really cool when I can work with people who, um, you know, make things happen, show up on time. And uh, I just get, this is going to sound so like adult-like, but I get so excited when people show up on time to a chat (laughs) that we schedule because, uh, yeah, sometimes it gets uh, really frustrating when you're like 15 minutes late and it's like, Hey, where's, uh, where's this person? What's, uh, what's happening? So anyways, huge shout out to both of them. So next week I have Adam Marino. He plays in a band called Attempt Survivors, also played in a band called Air Type 11, and also played in the recently reunited, going to be playing some shows in November in New York City, called Seisha, little screamo legend Seisha. But um, Adam is a lifer, has been involved in independent music for a very long time, lives in San Diego now, has been involved in the cosmetology industry for quite some time. He's a hair hairdresser. I'm not sure the appropriate <laughs> verbiage there, but uh, yeah, I just uh, was excited to talk to him because um has done a lot of great music over the years. So wanted to pick his brain about that. So Adam Marino from Attempt Survivors, Airtype 11, and Seisha coming up next week. Until then, please be safe, everybody. The show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Trust me in saying that no matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all of the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. My simple solution to the problem was remove people from the scene and help them feel safer. In response to attacks against Asian Americans... Maddie Park raised over $250,000 to donate cab rides to the Asian community. There is so much more work to be done. We really need to come together and tackle this issue as a community. Support the Asian community. Learn how at lovehasnolabels.com. Brought to you by Love Has No Labels and the Ad Council.